0: Father, I just ask that my words this morning might be words that reflect your truth and that your truth will touch and change all our hearts and make us to grow more like Jesus. I ask that in his name. Amen. Well, the title of the sermon, for anyone who hasn't heard, is From Zombies to Servants. That uh, should get you thinking. So, So what are zombies? Can anyone give me a demo? I didn't dare ask that at the 8 o'clock service. <laughs> we have a few attempts here. Yeah. <coughs> we have some potential zombies, unless they're all male. <laughs> I'm not sure that we can conclude anything from that, but I'll leave that to you. A zombie, according to pop culture and folklore, is usually either a reanimated corpse with a ravenous appetite or someone who's been bitten by a zombie and caught the zombie virus, so to speak. Zombies are usually portrayed as strong but robotic beings with rotting flesh. Their only mission is to feed. They typically don't have conversations, although the article I read said that some can grunt. I'm not sure that's very advanced in terms of conversation, but... We all know people who only seem to grunt when they're spoken to. So where did the idea of zombies come from? Well, according to one, I got interested in research this a bit. The ancient Greeks, they say, may have been the first civilization to be uh, terrorized by the fear of the undead. They've actually, archaeologists have actually found um, burials where they'd lay in heavy stones and other things like that on top of the, uh, the bodies to stop them from getting up again. That's uh, quite disturbing, really. A zombie folklore has been uh, around for centuries, in Haiti in particular, which I think most of you know is an island in the Caribbean. And uh, it's, um, they think it goes back to the time of slavery in Haiti. Now, we all know how awful conditions for slaves in plantations were. It was particularly bad in Haiti. It was just brutish, horrible. And uh, some think that the idea of zombies came from the fact that they felt like zombies in the life they were living already. It was so brutal and awful. And for those of you who like a scientific explanation, this is work, I I found it interesting. There have been investigations into a practice in that area known as bokor, where they used herbs, shells, fish, animal parts, bones and other objects to create different concoctions, including what were called zombie pow- powders, which apparently in the investigation contain something called tetrodotoxin, I think I've got that correct, which is the same uh, poison as you find if you um, eat things like pufferfish and other marine creatures that can have a poisonous effect. It's a paralytic poison. High doses of it can lead to paralysis and to coma. But in low doses, sub, um, sub-fatal, they uh, can cause zombie-like sim- dif- symptoms such as difficulty walking, mental confusion and respiratory problems. You can see the links, can't you? And high doses can make someone appear to be dead and then reanimate again. So whether that, how that ties into the folklore, you can decide for yourselves. But the question some of you are probably asking at this point is, what have zombies got to do with the Bible? Well, let's have a look at the beginning of Ephesians 2 and read that again. As you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, humans in their natural state, unredeemed, are the walking dead. We're not alive, we're dead in our sins and trespasses, but we're still walking, remembering that walking in the Bible refers to way of life. And also, they were creatures of their appetites. Again, that reflects the whole zombie concept. It's a gruesome, uncomfortable picture, isn't it? but I think it reflects how terrible and loathsome the bondage of sin and death really is. That's where we came from. And let's also remember, this was the horribleness into which Jesus descended in order to redeem us. That's the burden of sin and death. He took on himself at the cross. Would you be prepared to become a zombie for the sake of saving zombies? That gives us some idea of the depth of God's love for us. But in verse 4, we come to two words that change everything. In fact, they change the whole of human history. What are those two words? But God. We were zombies bound over to death, but God. We were creatures consumed by our own appetites, but God. Whether we knew it or not, we were followers of the one who is at work in the sons of disobedience. But God, what did God do? He brought the dead back to life. He took zombies and restored their full humanity. And as if this wasn't marvellous enough, it didn't even stop there. We are told in verse 6. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. (coughs) You'll have to excuse the cough I brought back with me from Europe. Special souvenir. And why would God do that? Why would he take the dead and restore them to life and give them back what it means to be truly human? Read verse 4. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. It's so important to understand this. We are loved, deeply and eternally loved, by a God who is rich in mercy beyond anything we can fully understand. And yet so often, we act as if we're the ones who are responsible for our own salvation. It's like the story of a man walking along the road, with a big, heavy sack of potatoes. It was all he could do to keep moving, holding this big, heavy sack of potatoes. And along came a horse and cart, and the driver saw his plight and said, come on up, I'll give you a lift, we're going in the same direction. So he gets on board, big, heavy sack of potatoes, and they drive along. And after a while, the driver looks over and says, why are you still carrying that sack of potatoes? Put it down in the cart. He says, oh, no, sir, you're already carrying me. I can't expect you to carry the potatoes as well. (laughs) I hope everyone in this room knows enough of basic physics to understand why that is nonsense. Because if he's carrying him, he's carrying whatever he carries as well. We cannot save ourselves. And a great example of how useless it is to even try and do that is the story of George Whitfield. Some of you may have heard of his name, famous evangelist of the 18th century. When he was a young student in the 1730s in England, he desperately wanted to get right with God. As a student at Oxford, he joined the Holy Club along with John and Charles Wesley and a group of other young men not as famous. And listen to what they did. I find it exhausting to even read it. I don't know how they actually carried it out. The members of that club rose early every day for lengthy devotions. They disciplined themselves so as not to waste a minute of the day. They wrote a diary every night in which they examined and condemned themselves for any fault during that day. They fasted every Wednesday and Friday and set aside Saturday as a Sabbath to prepare for the Lord's Day. They took communion each Sunday. They tried to persuade others to attend church and refrain from evil. They visited prisons and gave money to help the inmates and to provide for the education of their children. I don't know when they had time to do their uni work, quite honestly, let alone eat, sleep, and everything else. Did that work? Well, Whitfield nearly ruined his health by going out in cold weather and lying prostrate before God for hours, crying out for deliverance from sin and Satan. For seven weeks he lay sick in bed and uh, desperately reading his New Testament in Greek and spending hours praying, yet by his own admission he was not saved because he was trusting all those things to save him. Finally, in a sense of utter desperation, in rejection of all self-trust, he cast his soul on the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. An array of faith granted him from above assured him he would not be cast out. And that was the moment when his real work for God began, when he stopped trying to earn his own salvation. He went on to be one of the, the greatest evangelists in history. We're not, not ever, ever, ever saved by our works, but we are saved to do God's work. Look at verse 10. This is a wonderful verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word translated in the ESV as workmanship is the Greek word poema, which you may or may not know is where we get the English word poem from. Have you ever thought of yourself, your life, as a poem which God is writing? We are God's poems. We are his masterpiece. That's another translation. Because how could the workmanship of the master creator be anything less than a masterpiece? So what does it mean to be a masterpiece? Firstly, being a masterpiece means that we are unique. No two works of art are the same. No two human beings are the same. You can't do what you can do. You don't feel things the way that you feel them. Every one of us is different. And that's okay. God made us to be different. You know, he doesn't make two flowers identical. How much less two people. We each have a role in his kingdom as who he created us to be, not to be a copycat of somebody else second being a masterpiece means that you are valuable you're not ordinary or common but rare and precious and not cheap and not disposable no child of god is ever cheap and disposable third being a masterpiece means we have a purpose a masterpiece is not random or accidental it's intentional and purposeful lastly being a masterpiece means we are loved a masterpiece is not neglected or abandoned by anyone who recognises it for what it is it's cherished and cared for (coughs) a masterpiece doesn't happen instantly The master craftsman proceeds with infinite care to make something unique and beautiful. A sculpture is chipped away at. We had the privilege while we were travelling of seeing a couple of Michelangelo's uh, sculptures. They're awesome, absolutely awesome. He didn't make them overnight. Pottery. The clay is shaped precisely, and after that, It still has to be put in the kiln at just the right temperature for the right length of time, etc. A tapestry looks like a random mass of threads on the wrong side until you see it the right way round. A painting looks to be built up from random bits of colour until you see the finished work. We can read the first chapter of the story and we have no idea where it's going or what's going to happen. Yet, unique as each piece of, masterpiece of God's is, there's something amazing. We are infinitely diverse because we are the artworks of an infinite God. Yet, amazingly, when the work is complete, when we come together before His throne, we will see something even more startling because every one of us will bear the likeness of Christ we're being made into his likeness. And because we're made to become like him, we're made to serve as he served in the way that he served. Now, I know at the eight o'clock before, um, a couple of people questioned me, what's the connection between John 13 and Ephesians 2? I can't see it. And as I said to them, well, I'm going to show you. We're all familiar with that story. We all know the story of how At the Last Supper, Jesus got up, took off his outer garment, picked up the basin and towel, (coughs) and washed the disciples' feet. (coughs) But have you ever looked closely at verse 3? Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, that was his motivation. He didn't do it out of weakness or somebody's got to do this. He did it knowing full well exactly who he was. The son of God. God the son. The second person of the Trinity. He wasn't lowering himself. He knew exactly what he was. He knew exactly who he was. And that set him free to serve. Because if you don't know who you are, you're going to serve for the wrong reasons. When we serve from weakness rather than strength or a sense of obligation or this is what I've got to do, this is what's expected of me, we, have, uh, we serve weakly, proudly, capriciously and often with je- a sense of jealousy because other people aren't doing what we're doing. <coughs> and it, it often expresses itself in exhaustion, Excuse me. <coughs> All I can tell you is it's much better than it was a few days ago. <laughs> but we get, end up with exhaustion, burnout, and deep resentment. But when we serve out of the joy of knowing who we are, that we are God's masterpieces, that we have a value that nobody can take away from us then we're free to serve without any sense of resentment at all because no one can take away what God has given us. And so we can serve, the member of his kingdom. Always remember, in the kingdom of God, servanthood is the mark of royalty. And as an example of what I'm talking about, a story about um, D.L. Moody, some of you will have heard of him. He was the great evangelist of the late 19th century, and he was an American. And he had a group of um, pastors, etc., come from Europe to one of his big conferences in America. Now, things were done a little bit differently in Europe, and at night, all these guys put their shoes outside their room because their hall servant would come along and polish their shoes while they were asleep. Small problem. America didn't have that system. Moody came along. He saw all the shoes out there and he did not want his brothers to be embarrassed. He did not want them to be humiliated. And so he spoke to a few of his ministry students, but remarkably, they all had excuses why they couldn't do it. They needed to go to bed. They needed to do this. They needed to do that. So Moody himself went along collected all the shoes, took them back to his room and polished them all himself. And no one would ever have known except that one of his friends burst in on him to ask him something while he was in the middle of doing it and that's how the secret got out. He was at that time the only big name evangelist in the whole world. But he didn't think twice about serving his brothers so that they would not be put to shame I think we can all learn something from that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have taken us from death to life, restored our humanity, and day by day you're changing us into the image of your son. Help us to know that you have set us free to serve in ways we could never have dreamed or imagined, that as we walk with you, we are the servants of your kingdom bringing your life and your love into all the world, in wherever you put us and however you have equipped us to do it. Thank you for this. Amen.